Chapter Three of Just As I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just As I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Three. After Twenty Years. You shall marry him," said Sir Everard, and so Morton and Dulcibella were engaged. The fair, flower-like girl and the dark-eyed, grave young man full of the sense of life's duties and responsibilities, a man who from boyhood upwards had taken life earnestly and had cared little for pleasure. "'Strange,' said the Honourable Mrs. Aspinall of Aspinall Towers, who was the leading voice in the chorus of county society, "'I remember Mr. Blake's father being among Alice Rothney's admirers, but Lord George would not hear of such a thing, and the mother was equally opposed to it.' Oh, poor Lady Courtney, sighed Mrs. Aspinall's visitor, young Mrs. Kibble, a struggling curate's wife who only knew of these great people by hearsay. She was very lovely, was she not? Lovely, cried Mrs. Aspinall. Oh, we don't see such beauty nowadays. These young persons, whose photographs obtrude themselves upon us everywhere, are mere dolls in comparison girls had very little help from dress in my time mrs kibble there were no wrigglings and twistings of the figure to show off the set of a train no side glances under devonshire hats no twisting of a handsome throat to sniff a rose pinned on the shoulder no posturing behind big fans a young woman's gown was cut straight up and down like a flour sack she had a bit of lace round her shoulders that was called a bertha she had a camellia stuck in her hair and she walked with her feet on the ground instead of balancing herself upon a three-inch heel a corn and a bunion as girls do nowadays some young women wore pink and some wore blue and a great many more wore white if there was a girl dressed in yellow people stared at her and that was a ballroom how uninteresting said mrs kibble who had been plotting and planning for the last week how to do up her cheap black silk with nottingham lace in the exact style of mrs aspinall's last confection from worth and in such a gown as that alice rothney was the sinusure of every eye yes blake was desperately in love with her he was a widower with three children belonging to the mercantile classes, only one generation removed from a foundry, not at all the kind of man that Lord George Rothney would be likely to approve of as a husband for his beautiful daughter. There were three daughters, I believe, but neither of the sisters could compare with Alice. Did the young lady care for him? asked Mrs. Kibble, deeply interested, and gratified that Mrs. Aspinall should condescend to talk so much, her duty calls at the Towers being generally of an uphill character. Of course not. Alice was an arrant flirt, and knew her own value. She led on Blake as she led others on, and then accepted Sir Everard Courtney, and laughed at her admirers. She cared no more for breaking hearts than you care for breaking eggs when you make a puddin, concluded Mrs. Aspinall, taking for granted that the curate's wife did make puddings. The Blakes belonged to the mercantile classes. This, no doubt, was the reason why Sir Everard Courtney, who had much pride of race, had opposed his daughter's marriage with Morton. 
Geoffrey Blake, Morton's grandfather, had made his money at Blackford, the big manufacturing town within thirty miles of Osthorpe. He had come up from the north, a penniless youth, with his clothes in a small deal box, and an invention for improving upon the existing method of smelting ore in his head. It had been hard work for him to get any one to hear of his new process, harder still to get it adopted, hardest of all to get it recognised as his and to get rewarded for it. But there was a vein of doggedness in the Blake family that made them conquerors in every struggle, and Geoffrey Blake pegged along the hard road of industrious poverty till he came to the Temple of Fortune. Once there, the goddess treated him kindly. He died a millionaire, leaving two sons, the elder of whom inherited the bulk of his father's property and carried on the ironworks, while the younger got £40,000 in the funds, an estate called Tangley Manor, which was worth 30000 more, and turned country squire. This was Walter Blake, Morton's father. He married a rural dean's daughter, who died six years after their marriage, leaving him with three children. He led a steady, reputable life, and was popular in his district. He hunted and shot a great deal, and farmed a little, and visited everybody worth visiting in the county. And in the prime and heyday of life, when his son Morton was just ten years old, he was foully murdered one October evening, in the lane leading to Osthorpe, as he rode home from the hunt. This direful event happened on the very day of Dulcie's birth, so Morton, as well as his sweetheart, had reason to regard the 20th of October as a melancholy anniversary. This did not prevent the lovers being quietly happy together as they sat by the fire, while the north wind rattled the casements and wrung groans as of remonstrance from the rocking elm branches. Oh, what a wintry night! exclaimed Dulcie. I must put my warm cloaks in hand directly. If this weather is going to last, the children will want them ever so long before Christmas. All the village children were under Dulcie's protection. She made them cloaks and hoods for winter. She gave them smart hats and tippets for summer. She taught in the Sunday school, and gave grand entertainments of tea and buns on the lawn, where the cedars had been growing ever since John Evelyn's time. Children and mothers and old women were all more or less in Dulcie's care. There was never sickness in the village without her knowing of it and ministering to the sufferer. Seldom a coffin for which her fair hands did not weave a wreath of hothouse flowers. "'Dulcie, Dulcie, how would this world get on without you?' said Morton, smiling at her earnestness. "'Oh, I should be no more missed than a raindrop that falls into the sea,' answered Dulcie, "'except by my father, and I suppose you would feel a want of something for the first day or two. "'That day or two would be all my life, Dulcie.' She had edged her stool away from her father's feet to Morton's, so they two were in a manner alone together, talking in subdued voices, while Sir Everard sat looking dreamily at the fire, absorbed in thought. There never was a happier picture of domestic life. The girl's fair head nestling closely against her lover's arm as it lay on the velvet cushion of his chair, Morton's earnest face looking down at her, a face full of power, with marked features, an open brow, curly brown hair, and thoughtful grey eyes. The father in his low, deep chair on the other side of the hearth, 
a man still in the prime and vigour of life, with a profile as delicately chiselled as a cameo, clear olive complexion, eyes of a darkly luminous grey, hair and beard like Hamlet's father's, a sable silvered, but eyebrows and lashes still as black as night. The face was at once handsome and remarkable. The form of forehead and skull promised a nature rich in fine qualities, benevolent, large-minded and intellectual. Dulcie might well be proud of such a father. The white hand with tapering fingers resting on the tawny velvet elbow of the chair would have been beautiful even in a woman, yet it was a strong and muscular hand withal, and had pulled stroke on the Isis thirty years ago and had been as true on the trigger of a rifle as the rugged paw of a Texan freebooter. These quiet evenings were ordinarily periods of perfect repose and happiness for Sir Everard Courtney, but on this one day of the year he was always thoughtful and sometimes moody and depressed. If he could by any means have been beguiled into forgetting the date until the day was over and done with, he might perchance have been spared the pain of sad memories, but modern civilization does not permit such oblivion. There, on his newspapers, on his letters, the date stared him in the face and compelled him to remember. Dulcie was not unmindful of her father, even when she seemed most engrossed by her lover's conversation. She stole a little look at him now and then, and presently rose from her low seat and went softly to the piano. She knew that pathetic music had a soothing influence upon Sir Everard, even when his own thoughts were saddest. She played one of Chopin's dreamiest nocturnes, a melody which seemed the plaintive whisper of a tender regret, a mournful yet caressing strain, as of one who loved the very sorrow that consumed him. Music with Dulcie was a gift rather than an accomplishment, there was soul in her fingers from the time she first touched the piano. Expression with her was thought and feeling, not a mechanical adjustment of fingertips and mathematical gradation from loud to soft. She had been carefully taught and trained to interpret her favourite composers, but in whatever she played, Beethoven, Mozart, Mendelssohn or Chopin, there was always something of Dulcie's very self, an individual soul interwoven with every phrase. She played on, passing from one nocturne to another and then to the swelling chords of one of Beethoven's sonatas, while the shadows deepened in the room and the logs dropped into ashes on the hearth. Presently the door was softly opened and the butler came in. "'There's a man in the office, Sir Everard, who wishes to see you on particular business. He's got a statement to make,' he says." Sir Everard started up at the summons, thoroughly awakened out of his reverie. If there was one thing upon which he was more severe with himself than another, it was in the strict performance of his magisterial duties. He was a man of culture, loving books and art and all the fairest things in life, a man to whom petty sessions and rural politics must needs be an abomination. Yet he loved order so well that he had willingly undertaken the office of magistrate, and once having put his hand to the plough, had never wavered. He was unerringly just, but he did not lean to the side of mercy, and the villagers thought him a Draco. What kind of man? Looks like a tramp, Sir Everard. What can he want? 
parish relief i suppose he should go to the overseer oh, so i told him sir everard thinking it might be that uh, but it isn't he says he wants to give himself up give himself up uh, yes sir everard uh, for a murder committed twenty years ago morton blake started up pale in the firelight a man whose father had been murdered twenty years ago on that very day was not likely to hear such a statement calmly twenty years ago he cried why this man must be my father's murderer let me see him let me my dear morton don't agitate yourself remonstrated sir everard quietly believe me there is no reason i know so well what this kind of thing means some idle drunken poaching rick-burning vagabond who has run the gamut of rural crime and drunk away the better part of his brains takes it into his head to make his name famous by handing himself over to justice for the one solitary crime of which he is not guilty a night in the lock-up at highclere will bring him to his senses and to-morrow morning he'll be whining his recantation but the date exclaimed morton strongly agitated twenty years ago this very day a mere coincidence returned sir everard lightly i dare say this vagabond never heard of your poor father living or dead i'll soon get rid of the ruffian is the lamp lighted in the office scroop yes sir everard and there's a good fire you'll come back to us directly you've done with the man won't you papa pleaded dulcie accompanying her father to the door yes dear if you wish it oh i do very much wish it if you dispose of your visitor quickly we can have just a quarter of an hour's chat before the warning bell rings you won't be too hard upon this poor ignorant creature will you dear father urged dulcie who had always her gentle prayer for infinite mercy to rogues and vagabonds sinners would have had an easy time of it if miss courtenay had sat in the magistrate's chair her father kissed her and murmured a loving word or two but promised nothing and then dulcie with a regretful sigh that there should be so much sin and sorrow in the world went back to the hearth where morton stood looking down at the logs with fixed and gloomy brow she laid her hand lightly on his shoulder but he did not feel or did not heed the touch dear morton she said i am sorry this should have moved you so deeply i am always moved when i think of my father's death do you suppose it was out of my mind on this day at this hour the very hour in which he was riding quietly homeward from the hunt riding homeward but never to reach home alive do you think i can forget dulcie that i can ever forget how he died and that his murderer has never been discovered if i thought the man in your father's office at this moment had hand or part in that deed i don't think the restraints of civilization would be strong enough to prevent me rushing to that room and flying at his throat like a bulldog there was something of the bulldog in his look as he spoke the gloomy yet resolute eye the powerful jaw the appearance of reserved power every muscle braced for a spring ever since i can remember i have had one wish always uppermost in my mind 
the desire to find myself face to face with the man who killed my father great heaven think that he may now on this twentieth anniversary of the murder be standing within fifty yards of me dulcie why should i not go to your father's office why should i not hear what the scoundrel has to say for a hundred reasons first because you are in a most unchristian state of mind unchristian muttered blake is it unchristian to hate the man who murdered my father and would be likely to do some act which you might repent all the rest of your life you heard what my father said morton be sure he knows what he's talking about he's had thirteen years experience of these people the man will not be able to deceive him he will have justice rigid justice i know that too well for i have so often had to plead for mercy in vain and i'm to wait here for an indefinite time said morton turning from her with an impatient gesture and walking up and down the room what while a conversation which may be life or death for me is being carried on in my absence never before had he spoken so roughly to dulcie the change startled her as when the glow and glory of a summer day turns all at once to cloud and storm some girls in dulcie's position would have resented the rudeness of the lover she thought only of the son's devotion to the dead father she stole to his side and put her arm through his and laid her head upon his shoulder you will not have long to wait dear morton my father manages these people so well only be patient for a little while end of chapter three